Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is a primer on price controls. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio library of podcasts on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think through policy or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. And so today I'm joined by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, to talk us through a primer on price controls. Dr. Matthews, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Tom. You know, for years, price controls, and that's where the government directly or indirectly mandates a price for certain products or services or even wages. Uh, They were largely relegated to the economic trash bin. But the political left, and especially progressives, want to bring them back in a big way. Today, there are powerful politicians who would subject subject most of the economy to some form of price controls. Lawmakers from both parties decry what they consider as price gouging uh, of such products as pharmaceuticals, which have become one of the chief targets for these price controls. And it's not just products and services. The state of Florida, which is generally considered a red or reddish state, has recently passed a $15 an hour minimum wage. It's the eighth state and the first in the South to adopt a $15 an hour minimum wage. A minimum wage is a government-imposed price control on labor. And there are many more examples. Uh, so maybe it's time for us to revisit the concept as, w- as uh, it seems to be not understood anymore. Uh, because most economists for years have said price controls don't work. I think it's interesting that when you talk about the minimum wage being a price control on labor, because there's different types of price controls, right? There's caps on prices, Mm -hmm. there's floors on prices, you know, Mm -hmm. so the price has to be at least this high. And we run into that on uh, minimum wages, but also maybe like agricultural price supports and things like that. Right. right? And and there's direct and indirect price controls. There's, There's a lot of ways they do it. The most important thing to understand about a price is that it is a powerful conveyor of information, both from the seller to the buyer and from the buyer to the seller. If buyers are reluctant to buy something at one price, that tells vendors they have to lower the price to a point consumers are willing to pay or in some ways increase demand, for example, by advertising or securing celebrity endorsements or something of that nature so that so that consumers are willing to pay the desired price. If the cost of producing the product is more than consumers are willing to pay, that lets a seller know he needs to find a way to cut cost or to get out of the business. Think of it like voting. Consumers vote for products and services with their money. If someone running uh, for elected office doesn't get many votes, he or she knows he has to change the message or lose. The same is true with vendors who are selling something and they want to find buyers who will buy it. Price trends also convey information. If you see prices spiking at one point or dropping drastically at one point, it tells you something. There may be a shortage of the ingredients somewhere in, in the world and they're not able to get that ingredients there and so the prices spike. If the prices are falling... It may be that somebody has come out with a new product or something new. 
all of that, the, both the prices and the trends in prices convey some information. Right. I think this is really a crucial point. And this is what economists call the price signal. Right. right? And I mean, the whole idea of signal is it is sending a message. So if you went to the grocery store last week and the price of a pint of strawberries was $2.19 and you go in this week and it's $4, that's telling you something. Now, you may not know what it's telling you, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's got a lot of information embedded in there. And as long as prices are free to move, the signaling is working, right? And the data and the information is being conveyed properly. And communist societies tend to take away those prices, Mm -hmm. and that creates all kinds of problems. And so we saw this in the former USSR Mm -hmm. uh, because they they didn't have real prices, and one of their goals was to eliminate prices. But when you eliminate the prices, nobody could tell where there's a shortage of something, who wants more of this, who wants more of that, and it just just completely uh, unstructured the economy in a way that nobody knows what needs to be created and what doesn't need to be created. And, and let's emphasize, you know, we're talking about buyers and sellers, but let, let's emphasize the fact that these price signals move throughout the distribution chain, right? The decision that a consumer makes whether or not to buy something. I mean, the store notices, right? Mm-hmm. Then the store sends a signal back to whoever they bought from, the wholesaler. The wholesaler sends We a, don't need to stock the shelves. That's exactly right. The wholesaler sends a message back to the manufacturer or to the farmer or whatever. It's an incredible amount of information communication that's going on all up and down the distribution chain. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very complex and sophisticated. And I'm sure you're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but when government starts interfering with that signaling, the, the whole chain of information gets disrupted. And, and it's, it's ideological. This it's, it's amazing to me. Many years ago, I talked to a young socialist man from Bolivia. Bolivia has gone to socialism again over the years. But at that point, they weren't. But we were talking about meat because whenever he came to the United States, he would sit and he'd eat huge amounts of meat at every meal. And I would ask him why. And he said, well, we don't uh, we have trouble getting good meat in Bolivia. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, because these people won't sell it. So I said, so nobody gets good meat. He said, no, no, they go over to Brazil. People with money go over to Brazil and buy all they want. And I said, what's the problem there? And he said, well, we have price controls on our meat. And so all I'm able to get is really fatty meat or meat that isn't very good uh, with a lot of gristle in it. But we're able to get all of that we want, Uh, but we can't get the really good meat. And I said, so does that mean you would like to see price controls ending in on meat? No, no, we need the price controls so that people can afford meat. And for some reason... He didn't make the connection, didn't seem to be able to make the connection yeah. that the reason he couldn't get good meat is the price controls. Right, exactly. Good meat, the, 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 the producer can get more money for the good meat. And if the price control won't allow them to sell it for that higher price, they'll sell it somewhere else. It's like that old thing about uh, somebody saying, uh, went to a store and uh, a bakery and they said, how much is your bread? Was well, $2 a loaf? <laughs> in my country, bread's only a dollar a loaf. Well, why don't you buy your bread in your country? Well, we don't have any bread don't to have buy. Any bread. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how hard it is for some people to seem to learn this lesson. Mm. I thought we had generally learned it in the U.S., but the left is coming back. So here are some problems that arise when consumers don't have real prices. Uh, first off, it encourages overconsumption. Now, consumers' willingness to pay a price tells sellers what consumers really want and how much they're willing to pay for it. 
However, if the, if the government is subsidizing some product or service, allowing the seller to charge an artificially low price, and that's one way you sort of uh, distort prices, consumers are more likely to, they're likely to buy more of what they would if they had to pay the real price. And that leads to overconsumption. And we see this phenomenon in healthcare. In the vast majority of cases, when a patient goes to a doctor or to a hospital or pharmacy, a third party, either the government or health insurer, is paying most or all of the bill. The result is that patients are less value-conscious shoppers in the healthcare uh, marketplace. So just imagine when uh, what, what would happen if we had the same kind of situation with cars. If you could go out and buy a Cadillac for a $20 copay, demand for Cadillacs would skyrocket. Lots of people would be buying Cadillacs who have, who, they'd be just as happy or better off with something less expensive or, or a, 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 a truck or something. But because the consumer demand is so high, Cadillacs would feel justified in charging significantly more for their, car, for their cars. And so that's one of the problems that you have. The U.S., for instance, spends about $3.5 trillion on health care. That's 18% of the total economy. Uh, most economists think we would be spending about 30% less, about 30% of is wasted, if people actually faced real prices in health care. It just gives you a sense as to how much might be wasted because of, that, of those underlying subsidies. The left has complained for years that we spend too much on health care, and they're right. And yet they keep pushing to have the government pick up more of the bills, subsidizing more spending, which would insulate consumers even more and drive spending even higher. That's why almost all of the government-run health care systems pass a global budget on health care, uh, saying we're only going to spend X amount of dollars on health care. So you see what happens. The government comes in and subsidizes this. It distorts the price. People are uh, only having to pay a $20 copay or a $30 copay or something of that nature. That encourages patients to spend more they're not value-conscious shoppers in the healthcare marketplace. The way you address that problem is to try to let them face more of the real price of it out of pocket or use insurance in the background to cover it. Uh, and yet what the left wants to do is say, let's have the government cover even more of it. But they know that that will drive up spending significantly, which is why all of them say, we're going to, we're going to, let, we're going to make it free for people to use the health care but we're only going to spend X number of dollars as a government on health care because we know they're going to spend so much. Exactly. Now, what you're describing when you talk about health insurance and the health care system is not really like a direct hard price control. Right. It's, it's, an, indirect. it's an indirect price control, right. right? And it's indirect in the sense that the consumer has no relationship between the actual price of things, which is the same kind of thing that happens with a hard price control, right. right? Where you're, you're literally saying, even though it costs $5 to produce this, you're not allowed to charge more than two fifty for it. So it's, it's that same link between the consumer and the real price, the real information that you're breaking. Right. If I'm a consumer and I go to buy a prescription drug, it, as a consumer, I don't really care if the government has said the, the pharmaceutical company can't charge any more than this, or the government has stepped in and subsidized most of the cost of it. I'm just looking at the price that I'm having to pay. And so as a result, I, I, if it significantly lowers, if we have a good or a product or service that people really value and we're paying significantly less than the actual price of it, we tend to spend more. So that's true on health care. It's true on um, 
uh, just about everything. And when the government steps, it's true on education. If the government steps in and subsidizes the price of it, you're likely to find people trying to go to Harvard rather than right. <laughs> rather than the local uh, community college or something because mm-hmm. it's it's being subsidized. And we as consumers can't make real value conscious choices out there. Right. So price controls also distort markets uh, because markets must have that free flow of price information in order to be able to know what to produce more of and what to produce less of, what people want and what they don't want. And we see this in uh, the federal health care programs like Medicare. So Medicare comes in, and when Medicare passed in 1965, they said, we're going to pay the price that doctors and and hospitals charge us, whatever they charge, we're going to pay that, the government's going to pay it. Uh, It turns out healthcare spending exploded, just like we talked about a minute ago. When it exploded, the government said, well, we can't afford this increased spending. We're spending way too much on this. So they came in and imposed price controls on doctors and hospitals on hospitals in the 1980s, on doctors in the 1990s, uh, that never actually controlled spending, but they stepped in to try to impose price controls on that. Now what happens is doctors and hospitals say, we can't make it on what Medicare pays. And as a result, they shift, they cost shift over to the private health insurance system. So health insurance premiums, if we have private health insurance, we're paying more to offset the cost shift from Medicare. And as a result, our premiums, if we have private health insurance, go up even as the government holds those other premiums down. The irony here is that the left will step in and say, well, look, Medicare only pays X dollars for this procedure or for this prescription drug. And people over here in the private sector with insurance are paying significantly more. So we need to get them over in the government run plan so that they can um, so that they can be paying less. But in fact, we're paying more in the private sector in part because the government is paying less. So there's a cost shift going on. There. So, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, what you're describing is that even if there's not a price control on the service that you're buying, the fact that there is a price control on the service somebody else is buying can still affect you. It can exactly. still raise your costs. So it distorts markets in all kinds of ways. Mm. Another way it does it is price controls undermine competition. Now, price controls are supposed to keep high prices from hurting working families, which presumably cannot afford a sharp increase in a certain price of essential goods and services. But it's well known that price controls don't always keep prices low. Sometimes they keep price control prices artificially high. For example, Congress routinely imposes, imposes price supports on milk and sugar, which deprive consumers of the benefit of lower price products. Uh, because we've uh, we've often said that with milk and sugar and so forth, sugar, uh, there are price controls on sugar, and that tends to mean people actually pay higher prices than they would if you actually had a free market where companies and sellers are competing on those prices. And it's done because, in many cases, the people who make the products go to Congress and say, keep our prices high. If we want to be able to sell milk out there to people, you need to make sure that there's floors in there are uh, floors so that we get enough to be able to do it. And as a result, it works out that people actually pay more for those products. You know, there's another way that price controls undermine competition that I think is really important that we ought to talk about for a bit. And that is that this is going back to that idea of the price signal. Mm -hmm. If prices for something are higher than they ought to be, it may be that what the price is signaling is that more competition needs to come into this business, right? right? Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, if if there's only one dry cleaners within a 30-mile radius and they're able to charge twice as much for their services another dry cleaner does, that's an opportunity for another dry cleaner to come into the market, right? So, exactly. I mean, this is part of this is part of what we mean when we talk about a price signal. Prices can signal to producers that they're producing too much and they need to cut back. Prices can signal that there are too many competitors in a particular market and somebody needs to go under. And prices can signal that there's not enough competition in a market. And that's an invitation to entrepreneurs and for new providers to come in and start competing more. And all of that, whether the signal is that there's too much competition or if the signal is that there's not enough competition, that's all important data that the system needs in order for it to work. And if you start stepping in and putting price controls on things, you interrupt that data signaling. And it may be that that's what keeps a new competitor from coming onto the market because there's no profit to be made. Right. And so the way the price controls hurt the, hurt the poor, sellers set a price for their products or services that they believe will maximize their revenue. Now, you see this on Shark Tank. If uh, people who watch Shark Tank know that when somebody comes in and says, well, we're, we're uh, doing this and we're, we're making this, it costs us $2 to make it and we're selling it for 7 or $8, they, uh, the, the, seller, the uh, sharks may say, that's great, but you could probably charge even more. They're trying to maximize their profits on doing that. And that price may be higher than many people are willing to pay. However, sellers often look for ways to try to provide discounts to people who can't afford them in ways that are sort of subtle and people don't really recognize, but it's a way to try to maximize their profits. So, for instance, a a theater, a movie theater, may set a price of, let's say, $8 to come to a movie in the evening on Friday night but they may set lower prices for those who come to a matinee. They may set lower prices for those who are seniors, either 60 or 65 or 55 years older. So they set a price. That's their maximizing price. But in order to get people who can't afford that, they then lower the price to certain groups to allow them to come in. Now, airlines used to do this as well. Their business model was set up to sell to business travelers. But they would then say, okay, if you're traveling over a weekend, you know, business travelers don't necessarily travel over the weekend, so we're going to give you a price if you're willing to stay over a Saturday night or over a weekend. So they look for various ways to do that, and retailers, uh, clothing stores will do that. The product comes out at the beginning of the season. It's at a certain price. If it hasn't been sold by the end of the season, they may knock it off 25%, 30%. If you wait till the beginning of the next season, they may be selling it at 50 or 70% discount. That's when I usually come in. <laughs> You know, it, it also seems to me that another form of differential pricing <clears throat> is like you go to the grocery store and you see there are big brand names and then there are store brands, right? Right. And very often those store brands are being produced by the same big brand name companies, they right? They actually are. So you've essentially got a manufacturer that that's selling the same or a very similar commodity under two different names at two different prices because it makes sense for, they've decided it makes sense for them to do so. And when you mentioned the airline thing, I mean, I think this is a, a incredible example of differential pricing. You know, if you've got 200 people on an airplane, you know, odds are there were 75 different prices that were paid for those tickets, right. you know, hey. depending on where the seat's located, how early or how late the people bought the seat, all that kind of thing. And people almost get to choose their price points to they, fly. They can because the airlines differentiate those mm-hmm. prices. Right. And so it is, and it sometimes it's called price discrimination. Right. It's, it's 
Uh, it's a way for companies to try to make sure they get as many people on. And the companies that are selling products and services, they have an interest to make sure that as many people buy their product. And so they have they look for various ways to try to uh, change those prices. But you can picture, can't you, sort of a uh, like a demagoguing uh, populist politician talking about airline pricing and say, mm-hmm. oh, this is totally unfair. It's totally ridiculous. The the same trip ought to cost the same thing for everybody, and we need to have some sort of standardization of airline prices. And, you know, if there should be one price for one. I mean, you could see them making that same right. kind of argument because they do that in other areas of the economy and other goods and services, too. But look at the amount of choice and flexibility that such a rule would be taking away, both from the seller and the buyer in this case. Right. And so what happens then is that when the politician comes in and says, we need to set one level price so that everybody knows what it is, uh, the higher income person who's willing to pay the higher price is likely to get a better deal from that. Mm-hmm. But the lower income person who waited till the uh, to the uh, the uh, pants or sweaters were at 90% off because we're going coming into summer or something right. like that right. is likely to have to pay more for it. And it takes away, it also strikes me that it takes away the ability of some players in the market to actually negotiate for themselves a better price. And, you know, I, I, I have to tell this story cause I think it's kind of funny, but I, I worked my way through college working at trucking companies, loading and unloading trucks. And this was just a few years after trucking was deregulated. So, you know, one form of price controls is the the way prices were at one time regulated in trucking and airlines and that sort of a thing, right? And so I, I asked a salesperson one time at the trucking company, you know, when, when you couldn't negotiate prices, how would a client determine whether or not I want to ship my product with carrier A or carrier mm-hmm. B? And without a hesitation, the salesman told me, whoever gave them the most booze, <laughs> Whatever salesman plied them with the most cases of Jack Daniels or whatever, that's who would get the business because they couldn't negotiate on price. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do discounts. They couldn't do anything like that. And so, you know, people are always going to try to get the best deal they can possibly get. And if they can't do it through the price mechanism, they'll do it through illegal means and they'll do it through kickbacks and they'll do it through bribes and things like that. Which takes us to the next point. Price controls undermine accountability. So when a company sets its price, it is accountable to the consumers who go out and buy that product. If you're, if the company isn't setting it a way the consumers want, the company will have to pay a price for that. Uh, but when the government comes in and sets the prices, then the people that the, cons- that the uh, seller is most interested in is not the consumer. It's the government that sets the price. Exactly. It's the government who comes up and it's so they will then go out and hire lobbyists. They'll make contributions to their politicians. Mm-hmm. They'll do other things to try to make sure they're getting a price that they can, they feel like they can uh, make a profit on, but it's the government who becomes the real consumer there because that's the only person the, the, se- the uh, seller's interested in. When we first at IPI started working on telecom and communications policy, this was the thing that just, I, I could hardly believe it. Because in state after state, I mean, let's, we'll talk about our home state of Texas, but this is true in almost every state, you would have an appointed board of regulators in the state who would literally set the price of telecom services from year to year. They would mm-hmm. decide what the price was. And so in, in the case of Texas, you had three appointed bureaucrats who would just pull numbers out of the air and say, we think a reasonable price for household telephone 
access is $21.93 a month. And they would literally set the price. And to your point, they became the customers of the phone companies, not, not the households, not the ratepayers. They weren't the customers. It was those three appointed bureaucrats who set the price that were the customers. And the telecom companies put enormous effort into lobbying them and building relationships with them and taking them trout fishing in Wyoming right. and doing all this kind of stuff because it was the price setter who was the customer. And in a free market economy without price controls, like you and I have been describing, it's the consumer who's the price setter to a large degree. Which takes us to our next point. Price controls destroy innovation. Because when it, I, our listeners here will remember, some of them are old enough to remember when people had one phone, it was a black phone, mm-hmm. AT&T phone, and that's all you had. Mm-hmm. And there was never any innovation on that. The, the most innovation they'd have was going from a straight cord to a curly cord, mm-hmm. cord so you didn't have to have it all over the floor. Uh, but once the government began sort of pulling back on this and allowing companies to compete a little more, we started ending the monopoly there. Then you saw all kinds of innovations mm-hmm. starting to come in. And then with cell phones, where the government did not play a major role in that sort of innovation there, uh, we've had m- remarkable innovation in the Internet and other places simply because companies, instead of uh, spending so much money trying to get regulations done and making sure they, they were putting, spending that money on innovation and creating new and innovative type of products. There is, there is absolutely an argument. There's no way to know if it's true because it's a counterfactual. But there's an argument that we might have had the Internet decades earlier had the telecom industry been deregulated decades earlier as opposed to being regulated as a monopoly and Mm -hmm. acting as a monopoly. Regulated industries don't innovate. And, you know, it's true of not just price regulation but other forms of regulation. But, you know, people are not going to make that extra additional effort. They're not going to make that extra additional investment. They're not going to take that extra additional risk if it, if it doesn't result in an increased profit. And so if the government is controlling your prices somehow, there's, there's literally no incentive to innovation. And, you know, one of the areas where this sort of deeply concerns us here at IPI is in this area of price controls on prescription drugs, because we've just seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, this remarkable example of the development of an effective vaccine in a very short amount of time. But at the same time, we have an administration that is pushing price controls on prescription drugs, or at least price limits on prescription drugs. And there's every reason to fear that that kind of price control could really inhibit innovation, continued innovation in this biopharmaceutical space. And, of course, we're talking about innovation and technology in this area. Mm-hmm. But innovation can also be just looking for new ways to try to provide a good product at a lower price. So airlines, their prices used to be uh, controlled. Mm-hmm. Back in the 70s, I believe it was, they uh, pulled that away. And uh, you started getting discount airlines. You started getting a whole new effort among companies to try to find how can we get people from point A to point B so that uh, low-income, average people, students, and all kinds of people can begin traveling if they're willing to pay, if they're willing to take a few restrictions, Mm -hmm. uh, do some things a little differently, uh, we can get them a very low price. And now we've got a lot of different airlines out there that are just um, inexpensive carriers. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to go back to the telecom example, 
um, as we record this Policy Basics podcast, almost every state now has deregulated mm-hmm. the setting of telecom prices at the state level. And and you have seen all sorts of explosive innovation that has taken place. And, you know, the critics would have argued that, oh, if, if we don't regulate prices, the companies will jack up the prices and they'll be really high and consumers won't be able to afford it. Well, what's happened? <laughs> Usually just the opposite happens. It, it, most of the time for most people today... If they want a wired phone line to their house, it's free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's part of a bundle, you know. It's part of a bundle that you get from your internet company or your cable company or something like that. And an awful lot of people are even saying, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Even though it's free, I don't need it. Mm-hmm. I, I I use my wireless phone all the time, you know. And the price of wireless phones has come down, not up. The price of wireless service. I mean, at the same time that the quality and the speed has gone up, the price has come down. We see this over and over again, and I can't help but draw some sort of a correlation, if not a causation, between all of that change and all of that innovation that has happened and the fact that we largely deregulated landline telephone service. And, of course, wireless telephone service was sort of never regulated in the first place because mm-hmm. it, it came along as a technological innovation, and it didn't fit neatly into any of the existing regulatory categories. So it was always sort of a lightly regulated thing. And that's, I think that's part of why we've seen so much, even when, even when the price of landline was regulated and controlled by the state, wireless prices were not. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's wrap up with one more type of price control that we don't, we don't want to leave without discussing some, we mentioned it, and that's the minimum wage. Because whereas price controls on most products and services, most of the time it's the government trying to keep the price low. With minimum wage, they're trying to keep the price of labor high. And uh, a minimum wage is simply a price control on what an employer pays for labor. Uh, And there have been uh, both Republicans and Democrats are willing to raise this minimum wage. And again, it can hurt the poor. If you are a if you're not trained well and you uh, have a lower education level or something and you've been out of the workforce for a while and you would be willing to work for less than the minimum wage in order to be able to get some skills and experience again, you're prohibited from doing it because of that minimum wage. So it um, the minimum wage actually forces it. It it helps people who are higher trained um, have better skills and so forth because you bump up that wage. And the uh, people who would be willing to undercut it just simply can't do it anymore. So it really hurts low-income people, minorities, and others who have struggled to try to uh, get the experience and training that they need. People who've been in jail and would be willing to come out and take a lower rate, a lower wage, in order to be able to get the experience and build the trust again can't do it because of that minimum wage. And yet we see the minimum wage gaining popularity both among Republicans and Democrats. You know, it's especially with the minimum wage, but I think this is true of all price controls. It's like the people who advocate them refuse to even accept that there's any linkage to anything else from a price control. I mean, they really seem to think that you can artificially cap prices on goods and services, and, and that the only effect of that will be like a benefit to consumers, right? And they seem to think the same thing on the minimum wage, that, yes, we can double or triple the minimum wage, and there will be no ripple effects, or there will be like, you know, the ripple effects will be completely insignificant. And it reminds me of your illustration about the the guy in Bolivia who could only get poor quality (laughs) meat, right? I mean, if your labor is not worth $15 an hour, 
you're going to have a hard time selling it mm-hmm. because your labor's not worth $15 an hour. And that's not to diss someone whose labor is not worth $15 an hour because I hate to break it to you, but we've all been there. Yep. Okay. When I, when I was in high school bagging groceries at the corner grocery store, I was a minimum wage earner. Now today I'd be described as an upper income earner, Mm -hmm. but I was a minimum wage earner and I had to be taught how to use a mop to clean up spilled mayonnaise on aisle seven. I wasn't worth minimum wage probably when I was (laughs) hired, you know, but yet that was the start that I needed. And I learned how to work. I learned a work ethic. I learned how to show up on time and how to clock in on time. I learned all those things at the minimum wage. And so we do deprive people who have potential, but yet they're not there yet. And so their labor's not worth $15 an hour. We, we, we restrict them from having those one or first sort of that first uh, step on the ladder that they need in order to become an, an employable human being. And there's a debate going on. Does, does a minimum wage actually cost jobs? And the answer is absolutely it does. However, if you had a minimum, minimum wage that has been, say, seven twenty five an hour for years and years and years, and just through the economy and so forth, the average wage being paid out there has moved up to 13 or $14 an hour. And so if you pass a $15 an hour minimum wage, it, it, the, the margin of what you're really raising it is small yeah. compared to what the average wage is out there. And I think sometimes you'll see studies where they'll say, oh, they imposed a, this, a higher minimum wage. Well, that's because the, the, the effective wage, what the real wage out there had grown significantly for the vast majority of people. Most people, if the minimum wage has been there for a while, most people who get the minimum wage are, are students, younger people who are just getting out in the workforce and so forth and not somebody who's been doing it for a while. So there, there's this sort of conflict among the studies, but the fact is, if you're telling somebody, the same thing's true with all of us. If somebody tells me I have to pay a lot more for a good or service or labor than I had been paying and that I feel like I can afford, I'm not going to consume as much of it. That's exactly right. Uh, on the minimum wage, I mean, would you agree that uh, a state-level minimum wage like what Florida just did is inadvisable, but, you know, I mean, they still have the right to do it if that's what the people want, but that a federal minimum wage is just nonsense. This makes no sense whatsoever, just because of the huge variation in cost of living and living standards from one state to another. I wrote a piece uh, some years ago for Forbes saying exactly that, which is minimum wage policy is a terrible policy, but if you're going to do it, if you're bound and determined to do it, then do it at the state level or in some cases even at the city level because Mm -hmm. so many states like Iowa, you have farmers out there, you've got a large red red area, but you have Des Moines and you have a few other small cities there. Mm -hmm. So if if you're going to do it, do it at the state level because what works for New York may not work for Mississippi. Right. So we can can make fun of Seattle or cities like that for passing high minimum wages, but if, if as long as it's just the city of Seattle, you could get mm-hmm. out to rural portions of Washington State, right? Right, uh, where the cost of living is not as high, and they ought to have a lower minimum wage. It might even be like a state like Illinois, where which which is like Chicago and then everything else. But you know? but like prices and other things, the left seems to think everybody ought to get the same wage, yeah. and not everybody is worth the same wage. Right. No, you're right. You're right. Well, Dr. Matthews, thank you very much. I think that's a really crucial basic concept in policy is just to understand price signals and to understand why any form of 
tampering with the price by the government just screws up all that signaling and results in all sorts of problems. So thank you for joining us today for our IPI Policy Basics podcast on a primer on price controls. You can find a lot more about prices and free market economies and market signals at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform? Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.